learned all this or have already been made perfect. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For, as I have often told you before and now, say again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame, is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like the glorious, like his glorious body. Heavenly Father, praise you so much for the Lord Jesus. Praise you that he has laid before us a great prize, and would you help us to see it and desire it, and to press on towards it for your glory. Amen. What are you living for? That is the burden of our passage this evening. What is it that occupies your attention? What is it that grabs your heart and drives you forward? What are you living for? Last week we saw that Paul wants to know Christ and to attain the resurrection from the dead. Knowing Christ for eternity comes through being right with God by trusting in Christ. And that's why Paul considers everything else rubbish except for knowing Jesus. Because nothing else counts before the judgment seat of God. The the same themes continue into today's passage. The question for us, are we living for the things that God has laid before us? Uh, The themes are the same, but the challenge has slightly changed, hasn't it? It seems that some Christians, at least people claiming to be Christians, who are uh, professing Christ, are denying the cross-shaped Christian life. Instead, they've become self-indulgent. Just look down with me, would you, at verses verses 18 and 19. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears... Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. And these two verses in the middle of our passage act as a warning for the Philippians and for us. These are people they know, I take it. Paul reminds the Philippians of them and weeps for them. They're known to him too. The the substance, if you like, of the passage is in bookends around these verses. Verses 12 to 14 and then verses 20 and 21, which focus on the future to which Paul is pressing on. And we'll come back to them in a moment. 
But if we're going to hear them rightly, we want to hear verses 15 to 19 first. Paul offers us a contrast between verse 15, those who are mature, and verses 18 and 19, those who are enemies of the cross. Paul says, look, you need to think the same way as me. You need to live the same way as me. And then he says, look, this is the alternative. All mature Christians think like me, but these people don't. And Paul sets them up to show the seriousness of making an alternative decision, a different path to walk. Uh, this uh, chapter 3 is, uh, has two really serious errors in them. Last week we saw verse 2, the Judaizers coming into to the church and saying, you must become a Jew to be a proper Christian. And Paul said in the strongest possible terms, they are no better than the pagans. And now in verse 18, Paul weeps for old friends who now walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. These are serious, sobering words. And Paul illustrates their problem using two verbs that I want us to notice. The first is at the end of verse 19, where he says their mind is on earthly things. Literally, their thinking is on earthly things. And if you've, if you've had your mind tuned by being in Philippians the last few weeks, then uh, that word thinking will be ringing in your ears. Uh, think like Christ, says Paul in chapter 2, verse 5, for example. Think of all other things as rubbish except knowing Christ, 3, verse 8. Thinking, uh, rightly, has been a significant theme through the book. Uh, and these enemies of the cross have their thinking devoted to earthly things. That mental obsession uh, cashes out in this. Their God is their stomach, he says. It seems that they are being driven along by their base desires, perhaps for power, perhaps for sex or wealth or reputation or comfort or, you know, maybe just for pizza. Maybe it really is just their stomachs. But the point is their God is not Jesus Christ. It is whatever their flesh desires. Their thinking is on earthly things and so they live. For many live as enemies of the cross. You see, Jesus died on the cross for us, didn't he? And he says, if you're going to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and take the same path that he did. Take up the cross-shaped life. But it seems that these people, though they call themselves Christians, and were once friends, obsess not about Jesus but about this world and its treasures. And they have become enemies of the cross. So before we we look at what Paul advocates as as the right path to take, I want us just to feel the bite of this. I want us to hear the warning, not because I think anybody is walking down that path, but to prevent us from doing that, for us to be able to self examine And if we're beginning to take steps down that road... Can I urge us not to? You'll have heard me say before, and you will hear me say it again, there are many people in the church today who are preaching what we call the prosperity gospel, that God wants to give you health, wealth, and happiness now. What we've seen in Philippians is that God does indeed want to bless us, but one of the ways he blesses us is by causing us to suffer. 
and so become more like Jesus. And Paul says, bring it on. And so if somebody is teaching that you can have everything now, that God is going to make you happy and healthy and wealthy now, let me say they are walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. And isn't it easy to keep the problem out there? So I could name and shame my, I was going to say my, my favourite prosperity preachers, probably my least favourite prosperity preachers would be more accurate. But that would be to miss the force of the passage. See, the Philippians are not prosperity preachers. They're Christians who are suffering along with Paul. And Paul is giving them a warning to stop them from going down that path. And so we need to hear it just as much as they needed to hear it. Let me open up some avenues that you may want to to look down, uh, if not walk down. Let's be honest with ourselves. How much is our ambition driven by this life and how much by the next? What drives the way you work? What priorities? How do you use your leisure time? What priorities? How do you decide uh, what your kids are going to do after school if you have kids? Uh, is, Is your life being driven by this life or the next? What are you living for? See, if we're driven by ambition or reputation or a comfortable life or uh, the success of our kids at school, then we're being driven by our base desires. And so we need to hear the warning. Uh, You see, these enemies of the cross, their end is destruction. Verse 18, verse 19. That's why Paul weeps. It's not that they've stopped hanging out with his little group of Christians. It's because their end is destruction. And he says, Philippians, whatever you do, don't make the same mistake. Instead, Paul says, have a very different single-mindedness. Look at verse 15 with me, would you? All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. Literally, Paul says, all mature believers should think this way. Think like me. Not thinking about earthly things, but thinking in the same way that Paul does. There's your thinking. Verse 16. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Thinking and living. These other people over here, they, they live as enemies of the cross of Christ. But we must live up to what we have attained. And in case that wasn't clear enough, verse 17, join with others in following my example, brothers and sisters, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Paul says there's loads of good examples around. Uh, imitate them, imitate me, live according to the pattern we gave you, don't live as enemies of the cross. All mature believers should think like Paul and live like Paul. So let's look at the bookends of the passage, at the way Paul thinks and lives, and see if we can align ourselves with him. So our first major point, think the past that secures the future. Paul's just said, uh, live up to what we have attained, verse 16. And we'll see in a moment, we haven't got everything that God has promised. But Paul wants us to be clear on what we do have and how that secures the future. So what have they attained? Uh, The enemies have their minds on earthly things, end of verse 19. But, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. The contrast is quite deliberate. 
Perhaps it was that the, the, these enemies of the cross were proud of their, their status as Roman citizens. People of Philippi mostly were, like Paul, Roman citizens, with all the privileges and protection and status that came with it. Indeed, the Philippian Christians probably were as well, many of them. But you are really citizens of heaven, says Paul. That's your home. That's where you belong. Like an ambassador going out from the Queen to some far-flung land, an alien culture, you know that it's not your home. You don't understand the mannerisms, you don't understand the language, the customs don't belong to you. Paul says, you are heaven's people, you are not Roman people. And he says, look, now, right now, Home is your, your home is in heaven. Okay, it's not a future tense thing. Paul says your citizenship is right now in heaven. Uh, whether you've been a Christian for a couple of days or years, uh, God has made you fit for his presence. If you died right now, you would go straight into his presence. God has prepared a place for you. He's put your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. You are his. Uh, we're righteous. Remember that from last week? By faith in Christ, we are right in God's sight right now. Uh, we're welcomed home. Welcomed into a relationship with God that lasts forever. That's why, verse 12, Paul talks about Christ taking hold of him. Not that I've already attained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. At some point in the past, every Christian became a Christian. Christ took hold of them at that point. But God has taken hold of us with a purpose. Verse 14, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which purpose God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. When Christ took hold of you, it was for the purpose of bringing you home to the heaven for, of which you are now a citizen. Now think back to chapter 1. We've seen it all the way through the book, actually. Chapter 1, verse 6. Now flick back with me. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Began a good work in you looks back to the day they became Christians. Uh, Paul is looking back on their life as Christians to date and saying, great partnership in the gospel. And Paul says, God will bring to completion what he's begun. He will bring you home. Think like this. We've been brought into a right relationship with God and the promise of the future with him, which is secure for all eternity. But we're not there yet. Verse 12, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. Paul says, I haven't reached the goal. I'm on the way. I have a home, it is mine, but I'm not there yet. Which I take it is why he was able to say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Chapter 1 verse 21, it is to finally be home. He has a relationship with Jesus now, a real living relationship with the God of the universe, but he doesn't know him fully yet. Which is why in chapter 3 verse 10 he says, I want to know Christ. He doesn't know Christ in the same way that he will do. He doesn't know Christ as he wants to. So he will do anything to know him better. And so 
attain the resurrection from the dead. God's purpose is to bring you to know Christ, to make you like Christ, and to bring you to heaven with Christ. Do you think like this? Paul considers everything rubbish except Christ. He says, verse 13, look again. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. He forgets what's behind him. It doesn't matter. Only the final future matters. That's why these these enemies of the cross are in such a tragic place, because they're obsessed with here and now. They've forgotten the future and they face destruction. Well, what about us? What is it that God has placed before us? Look down with me, would you, at verses 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. In the background to these two verses is chapter 2 and verses 6 to 11, that great hymn that Andy unpacked for us three or four weeks ago. Okay, the testimony to the work of Christ. The words are frequently the same here. The language is almost identical. And so, says Paul, Jesus humbled himself. Okay, took on our lowly form, our humanity. He was transformed to be like us, took our form, became one of us, and went to his death. And says, well, that's the path that we've got to take as well. The cross-shaped life. Don't be enemies of the cross. But, he says, look, Paul was, Jesus was resurrected, given a body that is utterly indestructible, eternal, radiant. Having taken our form and then been raised to new life, he will transform us to be like him. Isn't that what he says? He will transform our lowly bodies, our humiliated bodies, humbled like Jesus, to be like his glorious body. All that is weak, humiliated, shameful in us will one day be gone. We'll be resurrected to bodies that will never hurt or weep or die or grow weak or anything that makes this world such a struggle. We will be just like Jesus in his resurrection. And he'll do it, did you notice, by the same power that he'll use to bring everything under his control. So you could be a Philippian thinking, I quite like my Roman citizenship. Well, the emperor is going to bow the knee to Jesus. You might look at the enemies of the cross and say, they've got it all right, they're professing Christ, and they get to eat their fill at Pizza Hut. Okay? They'll be brought to bow the knee to Jesus. And while they are facing their destruction, we will get resurrection bodies. And even now, do you remember, we're becoming like Christ. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us to enable us to suffer the loss of all the things that don't matter now. Friends, that is why we long for Jesus Christ to return, isn't it? We eagerly await a saviour from there. One who will liberate us from every sin and every trial to a future of unfading splendour. 
There is a past action of Christ. He's taken hold of us that guarantees a future. And what a future. Do you ever stop and think about it? Do you think about the length of it? Stretching on for endless centuries. Time to spend with family and friends. A time to really get to know each other. I'm quite new here. I don't know many of you very well at all. I'm really looking forward to spending more time with you. But time runs out, doesn't it? But in eternity, it doesn't. And there'll be no misunderstandings, no, no selfish motives in the way that we are with each other. Just real, deep, pure relationships. At time to hang out with your Bible heroes, whoever that might be for you. At time to spend with Jesus. And yes, count everything in this life as rubbish. Because the future is totally worth it. Do you ever think about the beauty of it? No darkness, no sin, no graffiti on the walls, no litter on the streets, no hospitals. I'm sorry if you're a doctor here, you'll be out of work. No funeral homes, I guess that means we won't be burying people. Instead, every sight, every sound, every scent, every taste will cause your heart to rise And give praise to the one who has blessed you so richly. Do you ever think about the feel of it, how it's described? A wedding banquet, a rich feast of well-aged wine and the finest steaks, in which death itself is swallowed up forever, where the lamb who sits on the throne sits you down and serves you. Where you find there's a room prepared for you in the palace of the king, Prepared by the king himself. Your name carved on the door by the master carpenter himself. Where the bed is even the right size, even if you're over six foot. uh, And where the views from your window can never be beaten. Do you ever stop and think about the presence of God with his people? Tenderly wiping away every tear from every eye. And laughing brightly at our wonder that he could love us so much. You see, if you never stop and think about it, no wonder you'll become consumed with earthly things. Think like me, says Paul. This is our future, and it's worth looking at and longing for. It's worth counting everything else as rubbish for. C.S. Lewis describes us as foolish children who make mud pies in the slums while, uh, because we cannot conceive what it is to go and have a holiday by the sea. And God lays before us endless days by the sea. Will we stop playing with mud pies in the slums? In fact, will we live Pressing on towards the future. That's uh, the main verb for Paul in uh, verses 12 to 14. Twice he says, press on. I press on. What does God want for you, Paul? A a deeper relationship with Jesus. uh, Stretching on into eternity. Uh, So what do you spend your life doing, Paul? Uh, Single-mindedly pressing on into that relationship with Christ. Forgetting what lies behind, Paul strains towards the future. God has laid a prize in front of Paul and he pursues it relentlessly, single-mindedly, obsessively. The language of verse 14 is taken right out of the Olympic Games. The old one, I guess, not the new one. 
I wonder, if you, have you ever watched the Olympics and the, the winner on the top of the podium getting their gold medals? Have you ever seen anyone looking glum? All that hard work, all the effort they've put in, anyone ever stood there and gone, it's not worth it really, shouldn't have bothered? I don't think I ever have. I think they generally start crying and smiling and singing the national anthem and they love it. But what an effort. I read an article this week about Jessica Ennis-Hill, the Olympic heptathlon champion who's just returning to training after having her first child. And she was, she was brutally honest about the hours, uh, the training, uh, the pain, the, the single-minded focus needed to get back to the top. And the question that ran through the article was, can she do it and be a mum at the same time? Will the, the two foci make it impossible for her? Because you see, Olympians need to be single-minded, obsessive about their goal. And so must we. Think like Paul, live like Paul. Be utterly driven to know and love Christ more and more. Be found only in Christ. Press on towards the goal. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, to use the language from earlier in the book. See, whether you'd call yourself a Christian or not yet, God's purpose for your life is that you should pursue Christ relentlessly, single-mindedly. Paul tells us to forget what is past and strive towards the future. Easier said than done, I guess. Paul somehow was able to make a clean break with his past in order to press on into the future and this relationship with Jesus. But so often we, we cling to the past and live in the past and live with the past in the present, don't we? I guess there are lots of ways this could cash out. Let me, let me name some of the obvious ones. Some of us carry uh, physically with us uh, the baggage of um, previous years, uh, whether that's uh, our growing tummies, whether that's an obvious disability, whether that for some of us might be uh, scars that are a little better hidden. The past lives with us. For others of us, the baggage isn't physical. Statistically, there are bound to be people in this room who struggle with depression. Others of us uh, will have been physically abused in the past. I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm speculating. I don't know you all well enough to know that yet. But it certainly wouldn't surprise me uh, the deep emotional scars of the past can be a very present, daily reality. For others of us, I guess the damage is hidden so well that we don't even see them. The pushy parents who taught us that our value was in success at work and at school. Uh, the friends who only hung out with us because we made them laugh. And now we feel vulnerable unless we're the life and soul of every party we go to. And I buried a friend a decade or so ago who died and committed suicide when he stopped being the life and soul of the party. A deep tragedy. Leaving the past behind is not easy. And Paul has encouraged us to leave it behind, the good and the bad, all the things that uh, we look back on. But the reality is we're going to need one another's help to count the past as loss 
and to leave it behind. Every one of us is broken. Every one of us carrying baggage of some, or some kind or another. And God has given each one of us to help each other in these last uh, few minutes. Let me suggest ways in which if, if we have uh, things in the past that uh, cling to us and shout for our attention, how will we recognise those things? What might our life look like? How might we be in danger of uh, being governed by our base desires and not by pursuit of Christ? And how can we change? How can we strive forwards together? As I've reflected on this, I wonder uh, whether at root all of our problems in terms of our ambitions come down to pride one way or another. Let me say, uh, first of all, if you are uh, one of those people who has an, uh, is very aware of a physical, mental or emotional burden, uh, being broken is not your fault. Whatever has been done to you, whatever uh, life has thrown at you, it is not your fault and there is no shame in the suffering you carry. And if you are ashamed, Jesus died to deal with that, so you are free. But if you try to carry this by yourself, make sure that it isn't pride that's making you carry it alone. God has called the church to bear, to bear each other's burdens. Will you let us help you? God has given you the, the church as a means of grace. Don't shut us out. Let us love you, help you to live with whatever it is that God has allowed into your life. Let us help each other, carry each other, until we can place the past firmly in the past. And let's encourage each other day by day towards the day when our humiliated bodies will be replaced by perfect new bodies in glory. Perhaps you don't have that obvious uh, history. But what does success look like for you? Paul had everything going for him and he counted it as loss. Uh, What does success look like for us? Is it a pride uh, that drives you to work? Or is it serving Jesus that sends you to work? Do you seek to fit in, to build a reputation, to stand out as uh, highly competent in your work to get the glory for yourself? Or do you stand out because you are somebody with a single-minded pursuit for Christ that matters more than your career? Do you speak for him? Do you love people the way Jesus tells you to? Or do you use people? Do you gossip or abstain from gossip? Do you work hard not because your boss is watching, but because Jesus is watching? It would be so easy for me to say, everybody who wants to pursue Christ wholeheartedly ought to become a clergyman, because we get to read the Bible all day, which is brilliant. That's no, that doesn't necessarily mean we hide from these problems. It doesn't mean that your work cannot be a place where you pursue Christ. Will he govern your choices at work about where you work and how you work? Will you pursue Christ? What does success look like in your family? 
lots of parents around here, as far as I can tell, and I'm very new to the area, seem to live vicariously through their kids, demanding success of their children, almost to get success through their kids. A great tragedy if my children don't grow up to be brain surgeons or something. I said to Mim in the past, and I maintain this, I genuinely don't care what my kids do. They could be bin men or bankers, and I couldn't give a monkeys, frankly. The only thing I care about is whether my kids are pursuing Christ with their whole lives. Is that what drives your parenting as well? See, if success is driving your parenting, I noticed that there are parents in Tim's class, he's in reception, who are getting at tutoring after school for their kids. They can't even tie their own shoelaces. Give the kids a break. But the, the passion to succeed and give their kids everything is mental, isn't it? Because what their kids need is their parents. They need a model of the Christian life. Let's not be like those people. Let's stand apart from them. Love them, but show them how to parent as Christians. Love our kids. Show them Jesus. Show them how to walk uh, Christianly. That is success. Because the other path is to destruction. Thirdly and finally, what is your priority with your spare time? We have more spare time than any generation before us. We may feel like we work harder than any generation before us, but we have more free time and more ways to spend our time. And so how you spend your time is a great indicator of the things that you really prioritise. I wonder, do you, do I, do any of us pursue Christ? Do we read our Bibles, not just in our devotions in the morning, on the train or whatever? Do we read our Bibles for fun? Because that's how God speaks to us. Do we say our prayers, not only in our devotions, but, you know, just because praying is a brilliant privilege and it's a way of pursuing relationship with Jesus? Do we read Christian books that help us to look at Jesus and see him more clearly and love him more dearly? Do we spend our time meeting up with each other? Uh, to encourage each other, to share life together, to pray together, to be devoted to Christ together. I don't know if this applies to anybody in this church, uh, but I do know that lots of mostly young men uh, in the church today spend a lot of their time playing Xbox. I wonder if Jesus comes back and finds you playing Xbox, whether he will feel like you are devoting yourself to him. Perhaps for us it's uh, watching movies or trash TV or uh, travelling or something else. None of those things are in themselves uh, bad things. They can all of them be done for Christ. But they aren't Christ. And if we pursue, if we pursue those things as an end in themselves, we are being distracted by our base desires. Are we single-mindedly, obsessively pursuing Jesus. I love this church to bits. I think there's a huge amount of good here. But I want to ask us, in a culture that is entertaining itself to death, are we prepared to imitate Paul and do things differently? Will we consider everything else a loss and leave it behind? Can we pursue Christ as our life's one single glorious obsession.
Why don't we pray? Our loving Lord Jesus, we delight in the future that you've laid before us, in the end of all suffering and an eternity of enjoying your presence and every good and great thing that you will give to us. Fill our hearts and minds with it. Help us to long for it. Help us to desire it more than all things. And most of all, help us to desire you, the one who is the centre of eternity, the king on the throne, uh, the brother and saviour and Lord for each of us who are Christians here. Help us to consider other things small and light and trivial and of no account, save that we can grow to know and love you more. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me encourage you before I sit down. At the bottom of your uh, note, your service sheet, there is a little question, or I suppose it's two or three questions together that make a single question. Um, please do uh, take the opportunity. It's very awkward. I'm British. I don't like doing it at all. Uh, please make it your aim to, to have that conversation with somebody after the service, in the pub or upstairs. Um, it would be a very healthy thing for us to be encouraging each other to apply this passage. Alan. Thanks, Ash. It seems right, actually, after what Ash has said and after the passage that we've read,